and us as social conservatives have to help our libertarian friends, but more importantly, the nation, understand what real freedom is all about. Welcome back to Lecture Me. Today we'll be hearing from Jeff Hunt. Jeff Hunt is the director of the Centennial Institute, vice president of public policy for Colorado Christian University, and chairman of the Western Conservative Summit. In today's lecture, Hunt responds to what he posits is a misunderstanding of freedom through social libertarianism and virtue's essential role. Let's get lectured. So uh, this talk comes out of uh, kind of passion that grew uh, in, in my Facebook debates online. So I'm one of those people that loves to get online. I debate. I'm happy to engage in debate. And, uh, and I notice, especially among young people, I'm a millennial. I'm the first year of the millennials, uh, that uh, there was an underlying philosophical position that they were espousing on issues around gay marriage, around uh, the legalization of marijuana. That's a huge issue right now. I've debated uh, the legalization of marijuana three times, including uh, one that was broadcast to the main stage of CPAC. I debated a guy named Austin Peterson, uh, which I'm going to show here. And Austin is a very popular figure among young libertarians. And I noticed that all of these debates were kind of rooted in a social libertarianism that is very popular among, uh, among millennials. And that's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about the benefits of it, but then also where we need to have some changes and some engagement so uh, that we don't fully go down that road because it's going to be problematic. At the end of the day, uh, my argument is that social libertarianism actually expands government. Uh, it breaks down the very efforts that they're trying to achieve. And so um, that's where we're going to end up. But um, first overview, we're going to talk about the shifting attitudes, second philosophical foundation of conservatism, and then finally the conservative response to libertarianism and how we can engage with our friends. Uh, this is timely because um, I can't say who they were, but uh, I had a conversation today with a leading uh, Republican in the House of Representatives, and he brought up just totally independently the influence and the rising influence of libertarianism among House Republicans. And uh, it's going to impact the Republican Party in two ways. One is on the foreign affairs uh, and their kind of approach to funding for foreign affairs efforts. But two, a lot of the social issues that we care deeply about, traditional family values, uh, keeping drugs out of the streets. Um, we're going to face problems as libertarianism continues to grow within the Republican Party. Um, so this isn't uh, a graph to say that liberals are on the left or, or uh, sorry, conservatives are on the left and liberals are on the right. This is more to show that we do have overlapping areas and where we overlap with libertarians on issues of limited government, free markets, those are fine and we're glad to partner with them and there's no problem with that and we're able to get a lot done on that. But the problem I'm going to talk about today is what's happening around this coalition right here. When liberals and libertarians team up pri primarily on social issues and the impact that has on our society. So we see this a lot in Colorado. Colorado is a very libertarian state. And I'm going to get into this in a second. But the shifting attitudes. Social libertarianism is one of the most powerful growing political forces in America right now. And you probably haven't heard of it because I think we're ahead of the curve, but it's going to be, continue to become an impact, especially what we're seeing in Colorado. Growing worldview among young liberals and libertarians, even conservatives. The Libertarian Party has had a 92% increase in voter registration since 2008. So they are a growing party. And in Colorado, I'm going to show you a pretty big shocking statistic on that. It stems from a misunderstanding of natural law, liberty, and order. So that's going to be one of my key theses 
is that what we're dealing with, especially among young libertarians, is just a misunderstanding of actually what liberty is and how freedom operates. Um, it's a rejection of natural law for a misunderstanding of freedom. And this quote I hear all the time, if I don't hurt anyone, don't tell me what to do. What I do in the privacy of my own basement, you shouldn't affect you and you should have no rule or concern about it. Uh, major liberal and libertarian shifts across most social issues. And ultimately what I'm saying is that we're moving from a misunderstanding of liberty to license. And our founders were actually prepared to deal with this. So Colorado, um, the state where I'm from, like I said, I served as Governor Romney's coalitions director. Uh, Barack Obama in 2012 won by roughly five percentage points, uh, similar to Hillary Clinton in 2016, won by about five percentage points. So that's remained about the same. So What's happened though on marijuana and doctor assisted suicide is quite different. So marijuana in 2012 won by 10 percentage points. You can see the districts here. So you can see roughly the same blue districts that went for um, Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton for the most part supported the legalization of marijuana. But then look at doctor assisted suicide in 2000, uh, I believe that was 2017, 16, 17. That won by 30 points in Colorado. And you can see that the shift in the counties that legalized marijuana has, uh, went really strong for uh, doctor-assisted suicide. Even, even counties that opposed legalized marijuana um, did support doctor-assisted suicide. And in those debates, and we were one of the most proactive in trying to fight doctor-assisted suicide in Colorado, what we constantly heard was that same quote. What I do in the privacy of my own life, those types of things shouldn't be regulated at all. You shouldn't care about them. We even heard, I don't choose it, but I don't want to tell other people not to choose it. Okay? So that's kind of the uh, underlying foundation that we're dealing with. So voter registration by party. So unaffiliated voters in Colorado are the strongest voting bloc by far. But when I served Governor Romney in 2012, we were all about a third, a third, a third. You can see that there in December of 2008. By January of 2018, unaffiliates far outweigh Republicans or Democrats. And unaffiliated voters that I've found in Colorado tend to be fiscal conservatives, but they tend to be socially liberal or socially libertarian. So that's why we get legalized marijuana. That's why we get doctor-assisted suicide. That's why we face issues like that in our state, um, is that when that 37% teams up with that 31% on social issues, social conservatives lose big time in the state of Colorado. And I think this is just, I think this is an indicator, a trend of where things are gonna be going in our country. So you can see voter registration by party, age range 18 to 34, far more unaffiliated than 65 plus. You see Republicans have a general uh, or sorry, Democrats have a general problem in, in Colorado uh, with, with voter registration along with some Republicans. But uh, unaffiliates are really growing there. So why do I think this is going to be a trend nationally? Because of what we're seeing happening on social issues nationally. So support for gay marriage continues to gain. Uh, it's now generally at 64% opposed at 34%. But even look among the Republican Party on the second right. Um, it's now up to 47%. Um, why is that happening? 
because I think we're embracing this idea of kind of a social libertarianism. So you can see um, uh, that shift there. American support for legalized marijuana continues to rise. And friends, we lived through this big campaign in 2016. The idea being, don't tell me what to do. I'm going to smoke privately in my own basement. It's not going to have any impact on anybody. So why, why should uh, the government restrict that? Um, this made a ton of news. Uh, Republican support for legal marijuana is now at majority level. So you can see that that's now risen above 51%. So you can see all the trends are, are going one direction. Americans hold record liberal views on most moral issues. This is from Gallup's poll about a year ago. And you can see this on everything. Record highs, birth control, record highs on divorce, record highs on same sex between unmarried men and women, record highs on gay and lesbian relations, record highs on having a baby outside of marriage, record highs, uh, record lows in support of the death penalty, record highs in support of doctor-assisted suicide, record highs in, uh, record lows in uh, approval of medical testing on animals, record highs on pornography, I was just talking with uh, the FRC director on pornography. This is a major issue that we're going to continue to face. Record highs on polygamy. We've lost even the idea that there's any definition of marriage. That was our point when it came to the Obergefell decision, is that we're actually removing the foundation for any definition of marriage, and you're seeing the social attitudes really start to shift on that. So why is this happening? Why is it all of a sudden? Is it, it's not necessarily liberalism that's winning. Donald Trump won. In 2016, Republicans now control the House and the Senate. It's because of that, what I argue is that middle ground between liberals and libertarians on social issues that's now driving record support for a number of, of moral issues um, uh, or kind of moving away from the moral practices and moral acceptability of these issues. Um, of the 19 issues included in this year's poll, 13 show meaningful change in a liberal direction over time, regardless of whether they are currently at a high point in Gallup's trend. No issue, no issue showed meaningful change towards more traditionally conservative positions compared to when Gallup first measured them. I do think there's one issue that we are winning on, and that's because the libertarians tend to side with us on this, and that's the abortion issue. Um, in Colorado, libertarians will recognize that there's a right to life that exists that needs to be protected. And because libertarians tend to side with us on that issue, we actually tend to do a little bit better. But on nearly every other moral issue, they side with the left, and that's where I think you're seeing the growth. And like I said, if I don't hurt anyone, don't tell me what to do. I don't want to tell others what to do as a very powerful force in Colorado among social libertarians. So I debated Austin Peterson. Um, at uh, Charlie Kirk's Turning Point USA conference. So uh, many of you know Charlie Kirk. He's not a liberal by any means. He's a strong conservative right now that's driving an agenda. He's doing a great job. I love Charlie. Charlie's one of my closest friends. Um, so you can tell that the attendance there was not going to be um, of college liberals. These were college conservatives, college libertarians, very passionate. When Austin walked on stage... He was a rock star. I haven't seen anyone received the way that Austin Peterson has been received. Now, Austin Peterson ran for U.S. president, finished second behind Gary Johnson with the Libertarian nomination for president. Um, he's now running for U.S. Senate in Missouri. And he's got a huge online following. He's 
but it's primarily among young people. And we debated marijuana uh, that day. And I'll tell you that the audience was definitely on Austin Peterson's side. So what is Austin Peterson's side when it comes to marijuana? It's this. I believe in a world where gay married couples are free to protect their marijuana fields with fully automatic machine guns. That's Austin Peterson. But what I, what's interesting about this is he uses the hashtag freedom. And that's really what we've got to talk about today. And us as social conservatives have to help our libertarian friends, but more importantly, the nation, understand what real freedom is all about. Because young millennials and young libertarians look at that and go, well, of course that's freedom. It is freedom. They get married, you can marry whoever you want. Um, can protect their marijuana fields, drug freedom. And in fact, uh, Austin Peterson even said he was open to the full um, legalization of all drugs. Um, and then fully automatic machine guns, um, which is not, those aren't your AR-15s, those are, you know, fully automatic machine guns. So if that's the definition of what freedom is, hashtag freedom, then we need to work through and help our friends understand what real freedom is. And I think we do that through returning to the roots of what conservatism is. Because friends, we're not the first ones to deal with this. The founding fathers even dealt with that. And I'm going to show that in a little bit. So I'm not the first one asking these questions. Oz Guinness is asking this question in A Free People's Suicide. Eric Metaxas asked this question in, in the book, If You Can Keep It. Um, great thinkers, great public policy thinkers are working through this. But Oz Guinness is starting to press back on this as well. Leadership without character, business without ethics, science without human values, in short, freedom without virtue will bring the republic to its knees. It's a deep quote. It's a serious quote. That this could be, this direction that our country is going could be the very direction that brings our country to its knees. Eric Metaxas, the idea that freedom of the, of the kind described by the founders requires virtue was central to the thinking of the founding generation and obvious to Tocqueville a half century later. It was the secret at the heart of America. The secret at the heart of America was virtue and freedom, that combination that exists together. So Russell Kirk wrote about this. Edmund Burke wrote about this, but I'm going to focus a little bit on Russell Kirk. Russell Kirk wrote The Conservative Mind. He's one of our heroes at the Centennial Institute, a hero here at Family Research Council as well. This was kind of his equation. That's what I'm going to call it, his equation to a healthy society. That you needed to have justice, order, freedom, and liberty all working together at the same time. And that is rooted on natural law. Oz Guinness used a similar thing in what he calls the golden triangle. The idea that faith, virtue, and freedom all need to work together. If you have, if any one of these falls off in America, America falls apart. Faith, if you remove faith from America, it falls apart. If you remove freedom from America, it falls apart. Virtue, it falls apart. But what's interesting about what Oz Guinness argues in the Golden Triangle is that all three are required. They all need each other. You cannot have faith without freedom in America. You cannot have freedom without virtue. You cannot have freedom without faith in America. 
cannot have faith without virtue and freedom. They all require each other. And in Oz's mind, they, they're built upon covenant. We had Oz speak at the Western Conservative Summit last year, and he, he did a great job uh, exploring this issue. I'm going to go back to Russell Kirk. Justice, order, and liberty, all three of those are, are required, and they're based upon natural law. Natural law is actually one of the strategic objectives of Colorado Christian University is the uh, promotion of natural law. So definition of natural law, objectively speaking, natural law is a term of politics and jurisprudence, may be defined as a loosely knit body of rules of action prescribed by an authority superior to the state. These rules, these rules variously, according to different schools of natural law and natural rights speculation, are derived from divine commandment, from right reason with which man is endowed by his creator, from the nature of mankind empirically regarded from the abstract reason of the enlightenment or from the long experience of humankind and community. Thomas Aquinas said that natural law is both revealed and reasonable. We know about natural law. We can see it. We can experience it. There are just ways this world works, but then there is also, it is revealed to us. And I think uh, America is absolutely founded on that, right? We are endowed by our creator. Where do our rights come from? They come from God. They don't come from government, and we don't just determine what they are based on whims. This is one of the major problems I think we face with the next generation, is that we don't understand where even our rights come from. Um, I believe our, the next generation has bought into really a social contract theory of rights as opposed to a divine or natural law understanding of rights. Social contract theory just means that the rights that we determine are the rights that we as a social organism as a society come up with. They're not given to us by God, therefore we can change our rights. So that's why you have on college campuses the decline of free speech rights, because we've decided that we don't believe that speech is a necessarily inalienable right, that we don't want to support hate speech, so therefore we will limit that as a collective society. Um, it's why you see the rise of kind of rights of, that come from the Bernie Sanders crowd. The right of uh, health care is a human right. Um, I've even seen you have a human right to a laptop. Um, that those are, those are rights. I mean, the United Nations has actually talked about that. That, that the right to a laptop is a human right. Or uh, the right to broadband internet is a human right. Or, like I said, the right to health care is a human right. Where do we get that sense? Why has that popped up on our radar? because we've moved from natural law to a sense of social contract theory where we determine the rights based upon our collective sense as opposed to the rights come from God. If you look at the founding documents of our country, we are endowed by our creator. That comes from God. Our rights come from God. That's where um, rights are determined. So Russell Kirk defines each one of his three. Justice, order, and liberty, and we're going to go through them. Justice is the principle and the process by which each man is accorded the things that are his own, the things that belong to his nature. This concept, the old Greeks and Romans expressed in the phrase, to each his own. It is the principle and the process that protects a man's life, his property, his proven rights, his station in life, his dignity. It is also the principle and the process that mets out punishment to the evildoer, which enforces penalties against violence and fraud. The allegorical figure of justice always holds a sword. Justice is the cornerstone of the world. 
divine justice and human justice, it is the first necessity of any decent society. So justice is critical. I don't think we have much of a problem of arguing for justice in our society these days. So we're going to kind of move past justice to some of the other ones. Order, which is where I think we have a real breakdown. <laughs> Get to my page here. Order is the principle and the process by which the peace and harmony of society are maintained. It is the arrangement of rights and duties in a state to ensure that a people will have just leaders, loyal citizens, and public tranquility. It implies the obedience of a nation to the laws of God and the obedience of individuals to just authority. Without order, justice rarely can be enforced and freedom cannot be maintained. Friends, this is the key. This is the key that we've got to communicate to the next generation. Without order, freedom cannot be maintained. So as we rush towards drug legalization, as we watch the breakdown of marriage and we watch as we kind of embrace an all-out freedom, sexual liberation, sexual freedom, drug freedom, um, all those issues that we talked about there, freedom ultimately cannot be maintained without some sense of order. Let's talk about liberty, their definition of freedom or liberty. is the principle and the process by which a man is made master of his own life, it implies the right of all members of adult society to make their own choices in most matters. The slave is a person whose actions in all important respects are directed by others. A free man is a person who has the right and the responsibility of deciding how he is to live with himself and his neighbors. So that becomes liberty. So you go back to it. You have freedom without order, or freedom without justice, and it breaks down. You have uh, freedom, or you have justice without freedom or order, and that breaks down. If you have order without justice or liberty, you have tyranny. So all three of these are necessary to work together. So um, Russell Kirk talks about how they all fit together, as well as uh, the founding fathers. Some nations have order without justice or freedom. These we usually call tyrannies. Other nations have freedom for a while. And uh, even uh, Os Guinness has talked about America as it embraces an all-out freedom without order as a cut flower. That for now, it looks beautiful. But without virtue, it continues to fade. Without justice or order, we can call those conditions anarchy. The founders of the American Republic equally, equally detesting tyranny and anarchy determined to establish an enduring political constitution that would recognize the claims of justice, order, and freedom, and that would allow no excessive demands upon the part of any one of these three principles. I think a lot of times, especially among millennials, we talk about uh, liberty, we talk about freedom, but if we don't have order, it's equally as bad as tyranny or anarchy, and that's where we're gonna end up as a country if we don't embrace order. Russell Court continues, most of them, the founders, having read John Milton, were well aware of those dangerous persons who, quote, license they mean when they cry liberty. A few of the American patriots, like Samuel Adams, most of his career, or Patrick Henry, early in life, stood for an absolute, all-embracing liberty of every man to do as impulse bade him. But the great majority, led by prudent men like John Adams, Ben Franklin, James Madison, 
and others, lots of others, <laughs> Alexander Hamilton, men of every party and faction desired only a disciplined, traditional, moderate, law-respecting freedom. The founders of the Republic put no trust in absolute, unqualified liberty. Unrestrained liberty, they thought, as dangerous as unrestrained power. Christian liberty and rightful civil freedoms must be balanced and bound by the safeguards of conscience, custom, good order, and good constitution. The American cause is not the cause of a revolutionary thirst for demolishing all obstacles to anarchic self-gratification. When modern Americans, like 18th century Americans, use the word freedom, they mean freedom under law. Freedom justified by many years of national experience, freedom under God even. And he quotes Edmund Burke, men of intemperate minds can never be free. Edmund Burke wrote in early uh, about the French Revolution, their passions forge their fetters. So we've talked a little bit about that, that, that idea that if you seek a freedom that's not ruled by self-governance, that's not ruled by natural law, you're actually building your own fetters. Uh, I remember a, a time when, uh, uh, oh, his, my, his name's escaping me, uh, Rick Warren. Rick Warren was interviewed on 60 Minutes about gay marriage. And they asked him the question about, shouldn't people be allowed to pursue the sexual relationships that they want to be able to pursue? And Rick Warren's response was, well, if I did that, I'd have 12 families to care for. You know, that idea of, like, if I pursued my sexual desires, I would be building the own, my own fetters, right? Their passions forge their fetters. There's no freedom in having 12 different wives, right? You have a lot of different wives that you have to care for. And so Rick Warren's response was that, that essentially same thing, that if I pursued my own passions, I'd be building my own fetters. American freedom has been the liberty of temperance policies and temperate intellects. So I want to talk to you about kind of what's happened in Colorado since marijuana has been legalized. I do a lot of debates on marijuana legalization, so if you have questions, I'm happy to answer those. But um, we legalized marijuana in Colorado under two auspices. One is that we didn't want to put people in jail because they had joints in their pockets. First of all, that's a misnomer. We don't put people in jail because they have joints in their pockets. You get a ticket for it. Um, there's almost nobody in jail for just possessing marijuana. You go to jail for the intent to distribute it because you're a drug dealer. That's why you go to jail. But secondly, because of a misunderstanding of freedom, that what I did in the privacy of my own basement, smoking marijuana, was not going to harm anybody. Well, what have been the effects of le marijuana legalization since 2012? One, we have an increase in heroin overdoses. Okay, number two, Drug overdose right now is the number one killer of pregnant mothers in Colorado. Number three, 2017 saw most drug overdose deaths in Colorado history. And what you'll see out of a lot of the marijuana industry is that this is going to replace opioids. Marijuana will replace opioids. If first it started, marijuana will replace alcohol. So if people smoke, we all agree that there's problems with alcohol. People drink and drive. People uh, you end up with spousal abuse as a result of alcohol. People are more angry sometimes because they're drunk. So if we just legalize marijuana, people will drink alcohol less. Well, that didn't work because they actually didn't offset them. They just combined them. So that's why we've had up here 145% increase in marijuana-related traffic fatalities. Um, 
And now they're saying that marijuana will, will be an offset for opioids. In fact, uh, CNN's Sanjay Gupta uh, just did a whole special on how marijuana is going to be a substitute for opioids. It's not true at all. We have the highest first-time youth use in the nation. We have an increase in marijuana-related youth suspensions and arrests. They, they thought that arrests were going to go down if we legalized marijuana. But because you can't smoke marijuana until you're 21, now we have a bunch of kids that are smoking marijuana, so all their arrests are going up. We've had an increase in cartel and black market activity. That was another thing that was sold to us in Colorado. If we legalize marijuana, the black market will go away, the cartels will go away. They've just moved across the border now into Colorado. That's where the cartel activity is going. You ask any sheriff, any deputy in Colorado, if they have problems with this, and they'll tell it's a huge problem. In fact, the Denver Post ran an article about how at every major marijuana cartel or black, op, black market operation, there's a tremendous amount of guns there. So we're t experiencing an increase in violence as well. And if marijuana was supposed to help solve our drug problems, why are we now in the midst of a big debate in Colorado as to the creation of proposed in needle injection sites in the state of Colorado? The drug problem's gotten worse in Colorado. So this notion that marijuana was somehow going to bring us freedom is the exact opposite. And this is what I try to show to our young libertarian friends, is that you're actually undercutting the very argument that you're seeking to implement. You think that we're actually reducing government. We're not reducing government. We're expanding government. We're expanding dependency on government as people use more and more drugs. We now have needle injection sites in Colorado because people are dependent on government, not because they're limited from government. So it's a, it's a big problem. Drug liberalization is leading to social breakdown, rising social costs, and the disintegration of positive freedom. One of the things that we talk about is the notion of negative freedom versus, but we don't talk too much about positive freedom. Negative freedom is the notion that I don't want the government intervention, intervening in my life. Um, I want to be free from government intervention. And we agree, that's good. But positive freedom is what did God create you for? And what could you achieve? And look at what marijuana is doing. People ask all the time, why is Colorado Christian University so interested in the issue of marijuana? And I, I brought that to our president one day. I said, why, you know, we get asked all the time, why is it that we're, uh, why is it that CCU is so passionate about this? He said, Jeff, God has entrusted us with the minds of the next generation to shepherd those minds. And when those minds and those lives are impacted by drug legalization, they don't live to be the full potential of what they could be, of what God created them to be. They're putting fetters on themselves. As Edmund Burke said, their passions are forging their fetters. It's actually reducing freedom for who they could be. That's an important aspect of freedom for us to think about. So uh, Edmund Burke, the only liberty that is valuable is a liberty connected with order that not only exists along with order and virtue, but which cannot exist at all without them. It inheres in good and steady government as its substance and vital principle. Thomas Jefferson, no government can continue good, but under the control of the people, and their minds are to be informed by education what is right and what is wrong. I don't think Thomas Jefferson would be accepted. The idea that somehow we're gonna even propose an idea of right and wrong in our society? But it was, it was necessary for the founding of our country to be encouraged in habits of virtue and to be deterred from those of vice. One of the most popular media programs right now is called Vice. These are the incalc 
inculcations necessary to render the people a sure basis for the structure and order of government. John Adams, this is a famous one. Our constitution was made for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate to the government of any other. Benjamin Franklin, only a virtuous people are capable of freedom. Why? Why, why are only a virtuous people capable of freedom? Because your passions form your fetters. As nations become more corrupt and vicious, they have more need of masters. And I think that that captures so much what I'm trying to explain today to our libertarian friends is that we're going to end up with stronger government as our masters because our people are so unvirtuous. The aim of every political constitution is or ought to be first to obtain the rulers, for rulers, men who possess most wisdom to discern and most virtue to pursue the common good of society and in the next place to take the most effectual precautions from keeping, for keeping them virtuous whilst they continue to hold their public trust. So it's actually an effort of government and leaders to try to keep virtue in society. Um, Ronald Reagan, even all the way to Ronald Reagan, the truth is politics and morality are inseparable. And as morality's foundation is religion, religion and politics are necessarily related. We need religion as a guide. We need it because we are imperfect and our government needs the church because only those humble enough to admit their sinners can bring to democracy the, the tolerance it requires in order to survive. A state is nothing more than the reflections of its citizens. The more decent the citizens, the more decent the state. So um, as we kind of get towards the end here, and I want to make sure I have some time for questions, this is what I'm trying to communicate. License, not liberty. When our libertarian friends like Austin Peterson talk about freedom, quote freedom, they're really talking about license. License leads to breakdown. We're seeing that in Colorado. Half the babies tested in Pueblo uh, for drugs were testing positive for marijuana. And 60 Minutes did a whole segment on the fact that his NICU is just filled with babies that are born underweight uh, from, from marijuana use. And part of this reason is the industry itself. We had a big issue that broke last week where um, a journal uh, called 400 marijuana dispensaries and said, hey, I'm a pregnant lady struggling with um, uh, morning sickness. Is marijuana okay for me to take? And 70% of the marijuana dispensaries said, yes, it's fine for you to take that. And we know for a fact it leads to low birth weights among children. It's leading to breakdown. Our society's breaking down. This results in more government intervention, which leads to tyranny. That's what we've got to help our friends understand, that the equation's got to change. We can't just have freedom and liberty. There has to be order there. If you want limited government, you want the freedom to be able to make your choices, then we've got to bring an order. Now, order doesn't mean government regulation. That's the most important thing to understand here. If our libertarian friends could be equally as passionate an advocate about personal restraint, self-governance, if they could be equally as passionate about that, then we could actually reach a good system, a good equation. But unfortunately, they're not. What they do is they end up with just, we want freedom from government, we want freedom from government, from tyranny, but they don't talk at all about the importance of self-restraint. Um, I was at a, uh, an event with... Um, uh, um, uh, 
not Rand Paul. I was going to say Ron Paul. Rand Paul is at an event with Rand Paul, and he's probably one of the most famous and recognizable uh, libertarians out there. And he talks about the importance of it's not the government's job to bring about order. It's not the government's job to bring about restraint upon people. It's the people's job to do that themselves. It's the pastor's job to do that. That's the right direction we need to go. It is the pastor's job. But the libertarians need to be vocal about that. They need to talk about that. They need to talk about where that sense of order is going to come. Because if we don't do that, we're going to end up right back here at social breakdown and ultimate tyranny. So that's where we find we need to reaffirm and we need to reaffirm that desire for liberty among our young millennial friends. That is great. That is perfect. We need to talk about that. We need to reaffirm that. But if we don't talk about the importance of self-restraint, of self-control, of virtue, that's not going to happen in our society and it's going to break down and we're ultimately going to end up with tyranny. Mary Beth Waddell is a proud South Carolinian and the Senior Legislative Assistant for Family Research Council working on religious liberty and family issues. Thanks for joining us, Mary Beth. Thank you for having me, Matthew. And it's Mary Beth, not Mary nor Beth. Am I right? You are correct. I know lots of people get that wrong and uh, yes. they should as, be chastised for it. Yes. As a Southerner, the double names are pretty standard. Oh, is that a Southern thing? Oh, absolutely. I, I didn't and beginning that. with Mary. Oh, like Mary Beth, Mary yep. Lou. I've heard that. Yep. I've seen movies in this, uh, from the South. I know. I know some culture. Um, so this is a really interesting lecture. I really enjoyed it because I've, uh, I discussed this, thing, this topic with my friends a lot because I think a lot of us sort of had these like Ron Paul moments in our youth where we were all like rah-rah libertarianism. And then over time as we understood the subtleties of, of social order and responsibility and that sort of thing, it became a little less, less clear about, about that one issue. Now, one of the things is this argument with marijuana and the social ills and, and the effects of it. And he talks about the, um, the prohibition issue. What is it about alcohol or, or even like with, with driving or things that can be dangerous that makes that okay, but, but that with marijuana it's not okay? Or do you think that, that things should be changed is how they are now and how we legislate that? I think it, it comes down to a calculus. You know, as conservatives, we want to maximize freedom, but minimize harm. Right. And, you know, there, there's this idea of, oh, if it's like, I'm not hurting anybody, then, like, leave me alone. But right. you see in some of these areas where they say it's, quote, unquote, not harmful, that it actually is. And so that goes into that calculus. Uh, for marijuana, for instance, mm -hmm. uh, in Colorado, for every dollar gained in tax revenue, they pay $4.50 to mitigate the effects of marijuana. Whoa. And when it comes to like pornography is another thing that people will say, hey, I'm just watching it in the privacy of my own home. Right. But pornography has a direct link and feed into human trafficking. Mm -hmm. And so you have these issues where you have to debunk this idea that just because you're doing it alone in your home, it still can have effects for others. That's interesting because I was also thinking about that other point when he was saying that these things that are supposedly supposed to decrease government regulation and influence actually increase it. And that was a really good point that I, I was going to ask you about I hadn't considered was that, like you said, what was it, $4 for every dollar or so? Yeah, on for every dollar of tax revenue, mm -hmm. they spend $4.50 mitigating right. the effects. That's really interesting. So I guess you would say it's sort of like a prudential judgment on a case-by-case -case basis about what are the costs 
of certain things that we're going to make legal or illegal and why. Exactly. Right, it's it's sort of this cost-benefit analysis of how much freedom are you gaining at expense of how much harm and just sort of weighing that continuum. Mm-hmm. How do we sort of institute, because I guess I guess what uh, what he would say is that we have to reinstate our understanding of natural law or even teach people about it. You know, I try to talk to the idea of natural law with certain people, and I think what will happen a lot of the times is you you can sort of implicitly see that other people kind of get natural law, right, because it's it's written on the heart of every man, right? I think in a, in a certain degree, you understand things that are right and wrong. But how can we, how can we bring that into the back to the center of the argument so we can really address the the crux of these issues? I think that's crucial. We have another lecture that we've done specifically on natural law, right? And in the little blurb describing it, of. it says the recovery of natural law is the recovery of reason itself. Reason that's open and engaged with the various domains of policy and social life from a viewpoint of human purpose and meaning. Without natural law, Mm -hmm. policy battles descend to mere uh, instrumental rationality and tend to become exercises of will and power that results in failure. Like We have to get back to this basic understanding Mm -hmm. of the quote from John Adams that our Constitution was made for a moral and religious people really only like they're the only ones who can sustain it because we need to get away from this idea of relativism of my truth and your truth oh yeah. like we have my experience and your experience mm-hmm. that gives us different opinions based on those experiences mm-hmm. but they all both have to be measured against the truth and yeah. that's where i think you see a lot of the divisions today among the different parties is because you've lost this natural law base level truth and understanding mm-hmm. of what is right and wrong, and that there is a higher law that comes from God. So you would say that whole argument of uh, uh, relativism stemmed from the breakdown of natural law being influenced, right? I think that's an argument that can be made, yeah. Yeah, because I I know people who aren't religious, and they seem to understand certain principles of natural law better than others. And I Exactly. C- you know, I couldn't tell you why, but yeah, it's apparent to me that that's not something you need to necessarily be religious about, but but some people sort of have more of a propensity for that than others. Like I had a friend in college who would agree with me about a lot of conservative principles and he didn't really know what he thought about religion. And then I, I call him years later and found out, come to find out that he he actually did convert and is now a Christian. And mm-hmm. it was funny because I thought, oh, that, you know, that doesn't surprise me at all because I think what I saw was that he understood natural law to a certain degree that actually led him uh, into the faith. Or, or yeah. whatever it was. But, you know, he had that openness that I think other people who, sh- who shut out certain ideas have to shut out those ideas of natural law as well. Um, another point I wanted to ask about is this, what you had mentioned before about don't tell me what to do if I'm not hurting anybody. That also seems like a really, like, base, uh, base level of morality everyone agrees on, is that it's what we can all agree is immoral is you trying to tell someone what to do if they're not hurting anybody. But I think we as Christians agree that you have to get beyond that um, to understand other ways that you, you know, have to act virtuously. It's not just like, am I not hurting anybody, but am I building up the body of Christ and my, my brother and sister? Because if I'm not, then you are maybe hurting other people and that sort of thing. I yeah, have experience with that sort of issue. Yeah, I agree. That kind of gets to the point that I was making before of these things where they say it's not harmful, but it actually 
objectively is. Like it's not subjective. It's dollars and cents with marijuana. Mm -hmm. And it's direct connections between demand for pornography and human trafficking. Like there is clear connections that it's really not debatable. And Mm -hmm. so I think that idea of you thinking just because you're the only one doing it and you're not like killing someone, (laughs) that it's not harmful. And that's what we need to understand is that, yeah, where my rights end is where yours begin. That reminds me of something I'd read um, when I was going to confession because I'm Catholic. You know, I go to confession, and, and when you when you go, what what you'll often do is look at the reflection through the Ten Commandments to see how you might have violated them. And you know, you can read the Ten Commandments for what they are, but these reflections are helpful to to make you think in ways you probably wouldn't wouldn't about how you might violate a commandment. And under Thou shalt not kill, besides the idea of did you kill you know murder a human being is. Mm-hmm. Have I uh, have I spoken ill of somebody else, like with malice? That mm-hmm. idea falls under the category of killing because you know, in terms of morality, you're doing the same thing to a much lesser degree. But that seems like the idea that a lot of people don't really get, um, or the, the the nuance that they don't understand. Yeah, I mean that's exactly what Jesus said. It's like you know, right. you have the Ten Commandments, but I say if you've looked at a woman lustfully, mm-hmm. you've committed adultery. Like it's not actually even about the act. It's about what's in your heart and what are your motivations. Right. Um, so yeah, being held to that higher standard. Mm-hmm. Hunt also said, he was quoting Oz Guinness, who um, we celebrate here at FRC before. I think we had him here earlier. Uh, the Oz Guinness said, faith, virtue, and freedom are essential to each other to be maintained. So do you think it's possible to really have faith without virtue that because that makes me think it's it's almost like they're two sides of the of the same coin like if i didn't have faith could i have virtue or or vice versa you know to some mm-hmm. degree well i think you've already answered that question and the answer <laughs> is yes um i was debating this and i i originally didn't think so but then i thought of people like the friend that you mentioned mm-hmm. that you know are maybe atheists maybe agnostic don't claim to have any kind of faith but they actually do have a genuine moral code and seem to be better than people who right. claim a Christian faith. Right. You know, and so I think that that it does make you your head spin a little bit to think that the answer is yes. But I I do think it's possible. I think it's rare, but I think it's possible. Right. I would agree. I think it's rare but possible. Um, but that makes me think they do have this implicit faith, and maybe they don't acknowledge it or they would deny that it's there. But it's like we said. I mean, God writes this on our hearts. And we have those there. Something that I always thought about after in my, and I guess like my own my own personal post libertarianism um, uh, fall from not grace. I let's say fall into grace. I f- fell back into grace from this libertarian point of view. Is the idea of legislating morality because every they always say, well, you can't legislate morality. But isn't that basically what our whole system is, is the, of law, is that we are legislating things that are essentially moral or immoral? In essence, yes. I initially disagreed with that and also oh, thought did. we don't legislate morality, that right. we can't. But if, if you look at like the base definition of morality, it's just principles concerning the distinction between right and wrong. And that's what our laws do. They do say, okay, this is right, this is wrong. Um, and so you're right that, that that's what our laws do. And so to me as a conservative, as I said, mm-hmm. we want to maximize freedom 
and minimize harm and find that balance there. And the John Adams quote, that our constitution was made for a moral and religious people and is wholly inadequate to a government of any other. So we have to have this base level natural law agreement on what is right and wrong for this system and these types of laws to work. Um, That, you know, our founders, they found this balance. They didn't want to require you to be a part of the Church of England. They enshrined religious freedom Mm -hmm. that goes to all religions and even non-religious people to say, as our first freedom in the Bill of Rights, we're saying that, yes, we are founded on Judeo-Christian principles, you know, as a country, but you have the freedom to believe what you want and to express your religion the way you so desire. And and that's kind of where that balance comes in. Excellent. Mary Beth, it was a pleasure to have you. Thank you for going through these ideas of natural law and lofty ideals that we love to go through on Lecture Me. Uh, next time you'll have to bring your South Carolinian uh, cuisines here. Any? Do you have any specialties you like to cook or at least eat, I'm sure? Yeah, um, I'm a huge biscuit fan. <laughs> biscuits. I am all about the biscuits, yes. You know, I think biscuits are the real problem. They say that it's the fried chicken and the oils and stuff. I think the biscuits are the true problem that I think we need to stay away from. That's yeah, the real problem. all harm. the carbs, man. All the you carbs. You know what? If we want but to hey, legislate you're Italian. Morality, all the pasta, dude. I know. I, it's a double-edged sword for me. <laughs> it's really difficult. To hear more, go to frc.org slash podcasts or frc.org slash lecture me for more.